0: Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to episode 36 of Descent Magazine's Belabored podcast. We hope you had a good holiday break, and uh, we certainly did, and now we are back to bring you our weekly news roundup, as usual. Yes. The uh-huh. hardest working podcast in labor. <laughs> hey, we believe in vacation time. Yes. We support your right to it and our right to it. Speaking of holiday breaks, as the holiday break winds up in Portland, the... Teachers Union in Portland, Oregon may be gearing up for a strike. Um, Taking a page from the Chicago Teachers Union, the Portland Association of Teachers has done a lot of the groundwork for a possible strike, releasing a report titled The Schools Portland Students Deserve and making the conditions in the classroom central to their fight and, most importantly, building a base among parents, students, the community, making issues like class size conditions in the schools, the teachers' working conditions, which are also the students' learning conditions, the core of their struggle. So the school board has initially called for 75 concessions, Um, they've rolled that back to, first they rolled that back to 51 under pressure and have moved even closer to a deal, but there are still some issues that are causing tension. So we will see what happens going forward. It's not clear right now whether there will be a strike, whether there will be a last-minute deal. Both sides say that they are very close, but the school board is also paying for a uh, consultant to help with the union fight. We, we know what that means here on Belabored when they bring in consultants to help. Um, and the students, meanwhile, have their own organized union that they say will not cross the picket lines if there is a strike. Um, the latest news that I've heard is that the union has scored some big wins when the D- district agreed to keep their former rules on their workloads, which is class size once again, um, and to not make teachers pay more of their health insurance. But there are still issues of salary and a few other things on the table. So we shall see where
1: that goes. I am sure we will have more on this soon. And also news coming from the Northwest, we reported last year on a great victory for SeaTac, which is the um, airport-centered community around... the Seattle Airport and um they recently voted in a $15 minimum wage which would have been a milestone really throughout the country. Uh unfortunately, um over uh over winter break, um the King County Superior Court judge Andrea Darvis actually uh right after the uh the Christmas holiday uh, decided to strike down uh, a crucial part of the SeaTac ordinance. So um that was basically the Part that would have increased the minimum wage from nine thirty-two per hour to fifteen dollars per hour for some of the employees at the airport, on the grounds that it would conflict with the jurisdiction of uh, the Port of Seattle. So, you know, without getting too far into the legal weeds here. Basically, this was um, an attempt at uh, using local preemption um, through the courts. And uh, what it would have done, this ruling, what this this ruling purports to do is basically limit uh, the decision to some hospitality workers within the city of SeaTac, but then actually, uh, you know, that would make it apply to only about 1,600 people who work at the hotels and the car services outside of the airport, and that would leave out approximately 4,700 of the people who would have um, benefited under the original ordinance um, because they allegedly belong to the Port of Seattle. So basically, by slicing and dicing up the jurisdiction, it effectively rendered the whole point of having the minimum wage be across this entire airport economy um, moot. Now there are... Um, There's pressure coming from the grassroots to get the commissioners to sign on to an interlocal agreement that would, in the meantime, reinstate the wage measure at the airport. Meanwhile, just, you know, on background, this is actually uh, something that is slated to actually... You know, create more jobs in the airport. It's not like this would be a horrible economic detriment to anyone at the airport. Um, it would probably pump about more than $50 million into the um, SeaTac economy. But of course, um, the issue here is that um, certain companies with a financial stake in the running of the airport, including Alaska Airlines, brought the suit, um, basically not uh, wanting such an ordinance, wanting to limit the scope of an ordinance, because frankly, they're afraid of um, this kind of thing spreading. So um, that's just the latest uh, That's just the latest stage in the drama around raising the minimum wage around the country. So we'll keep on following that for you. In the meantime, everything's in limbo at SeaTac, unfortunately.
0: Limbo seems to be the theme of our news roundup this week. Um, another thing that's in limbo are about 1.3 million unemployed Americans who have been unemployed for more than 26 weeks, as Congress argues about whether or not we should continue to extend unemployment benefits. Um, The unemployment benefits expired, of course, at the end of the year. So in the meantime, the bill is in the Senate, which is usually where good bills go to die, or well, all bills go to die lately. It has passed a cloture vote, which means that they have stopped filibustering it temporarily, but that does not mean that the Republicans who voted to debate the bill will actually vote for it. And then, of course, it has to pass the House, where you have a good chunk of people who just don't think unemployment benefits should be passed in any case, and a whole bunch of other people who are grandstanding on the idea that if we're going to continue to help long-term unemployed people who are long-term unemployed through no fault of their own, that we should pay for it by cutting some other services. Um, You can guess, of course, where those cuts are likely to come or likely to be suggested to come hint it won't be the military budget so we shall see once again where that goes as uh the next week wears on meanwhile if you are one of those 1.3 million people whose unemployment benefits just got cut we would really love to hear from you how this is affecting you Um, you can tweet at us at hashtag belabored leave us a message at the dissent magazine site or at facebook or find either of our personal emails
1: and, uh, just on the international front, um, there was a major strike action um, over the past few weeks in Korea. Um, South Korea actually has a pretty robust labor movement. it's one of the bastions of the left um, in a country that has basically developed its entire economy around a neoliberal agenda um, you know throughout the post-war period. So um, it's actually become something of a mass movement which is really interesting given how uh, you know we, we tend to think of these sort of broad-based populist Movements is something that's centered around um, the uh, around Europe, say with those anti-austerity measures, but um, now the South Korean rail workers led uh, pretty much led a general strike action um, back in December, um, and it was after the government basically threatened to crack down. And they sent riot police down to. Um, uh, to bust up on uh, union actions and to intimidate some of the union leaders, um, the workers are essentially revolting against a privatization plan uh, that uh, was supposed to be designed to sort of at first uh, divide up the uh, railway into separate entities, and then eventually um, uh, the, the fear is that they will be spun off and then fully privatized um, through a commercialization arrangement. And they were beginning with um, a off of the um, high speed tr- rail service, which caters to uh, higher end customers. Anyway, um, so, you know, this is basically another typical story of a government trying to slough off its state-owned enterprises and then uh, in the name of, you know, sort of competition and getting the uh, railway out of debt, etc. Rail workers saw it very differently because it really falls into a pattern of the government consistently trying to privatize public services and um, generally being fairly unkind to labor. Labor law in Korea is uh, is, um, struck So that workers basically have minimal rights. Um, Very often they are relegated to temp or dispatch positions, which makes it very hard for them to organize. And if you are following any labor issues um, in Asia right now, this, along with some of the Cambodia and Bangladesh worker strikes, are definitely things to follow. And uh, hopefully we'll see some action coming out of that, not just in terms of labor alone, but in terms of a broad-based civil society movement as well.
0: from temp workers in Korea to temp workers right here at home, um, I have a piece up at In These Times this week that has um, sort of ate my soul for several months, and I've made many, many cryptic references to it over the course of uh, the last probably 20 episodes of this podcast. It's a piece about temp workers, specifically in manufacturing, and it's called Forever Temps. And... One of the things that I find the most fascinating about this is, of course, that temp work started out as something that was really sold as women's work, that it was sold to us as a way for middle-class women who were maybe married or maybe still lived at home and wanted to make a little extra money on the side, could, you know, take a job, do a little bit of work, stop whenever they felt like it, be flexible, and that they didn't, presumably didn't need Security and they didn't need a really solid wage. And then now we're seeing that creeping into the most uh, masculine gendered of workplaces, though certainly most of the workers or all of the workers are no longer men in manufacturing. Um, and, you know, on the flip side of that, we hear a lot from politicians about how what we really need to do is bring back manufacturing to America and. One of the interesting factoids in this piece is that if you look at the numbers of workers in the temp industry in the 90s and you adjust by how many people, how many jobs were lost in manufacturing, it's possible that those manufacturing jobs weren't actually outsourced overseas. They were quite possibly outsourced right here to a temp agency where they are no longer counted in official labor statistics as manufacturing workers, but as service workers. Mm
1: -hmm. Some of the same exact workers, in fact, I right. guess.
0: Right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. People getting laid off and then rehired as mm-hmm. temp workers.
1: That is one of the dirty secrets of the temp world. Just account. one. Yeah. There are many. There are so many. What, what are some of the other dirty things you uncovered in your <laughs> six-month <laughs> deep, deep dive?
0: Well, you know, I mean, one of the things – so I spoke to a representative from the American Staffing Association, which is the the professional organization for um, temp labor companies, and – what struck stuck out to me was that companies that are paying for temps are paying, you know, if the temp makes $10 an hour, the company that the temp is hired through has to make a profit on that. So they're, the company, say Glock, a company that I mentioned in this piece that makes guns down in Smyrna, Georgia, um, if they're hiring temps through a company called Automation at $10 an hour, Glock is probably paying $15 an hour to Automation, which is... You know, about as much as it might cost them to give that worker a raise and hire him directly. Mm -hmm. But the thing, so right, the real value that they're paying for, and this is from the Professional Association of Staffing Agencies, is the flexibility, as in, it's the ability to lay these people off when they don't need them and bring more people in when they do need them. Mm -hmm.
1: It's efficiency, basically. Right. It's
0: very much um, Aaron Hatton, who's a, a wonderful. Professor who wrote a book called The Temp Economy that I referenced heavily and interviewed her for this piece. Um, She calls it the ring and core approach. So you have your core of your workers who are directly hired, who tend to be higher paid, maybe higher skilled, maybe have been around for a while and know the company well and have moved up a little bit in the company. And then you have this ring of temps that you can just get rid of when you don't want to. And Nissan, the other company that I focused heavily on in this piece, um, they say that they have never laid off a worker. And when I asked the Nissan spokesperson if that included their temps, he did not answer me.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because temps aren't real workers, of course. Well,
0: right. They've never laid off anybody that they hire, but Yates Services may have laid off a whole bunch of people, or Kelly Services, which P.S. is the company that used to be called Kelly Girl Service back in the
1: 60s. That uh, tantalizing lady in the advertisement with the pencil between oh, her teeth. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And and you noted in, in a section of your piece, you said it went from sort of the Kelly girl image to the strapping man image. Oh, yeah.
0: And literally, strapping man is used in one of these ads. Strapping. Yeah. Um, the the re- I mean, the gendered nature of this is so fascinating mm-hmm. to me. Right. Mm-hmm. I've written so much about um, feminized work and feminized norms of. Work in terms of working time and flexibility, quote unquote, and this is really the flip side of that, right? right? Is how these feminized norms have now become the norm for everybody, and it didn't, it didn't protect you to be a man in your manly man field of manliness, right. because they just came for you eventually too.
1: Right, right, and this is a specific kind of feminization that is sort of right. of the neoliberal <laughs> sort, oh, which yeah. is um, definitely not, uh, you know, uh, there are, there are various ways in which work can be gendered that actually, you know, leads towards, you know, more social protection, et cetera. Yeah. But that's, fortunately, I mean, um, I don't know. I don't know if it, you always, what, was it always seen as like sort of part of the agenda to generally just keep on driving um, the overall workforce in this direction, do you think? Um, of I increasing mean, sort of so-called flexibility, liminality. I mean, that's
0: clearly been the drive for a long time and, and all across the workforce, right? We've talked about this a ton. Mm-hmm. You've written about this a ton. That um, that's been clearly the drive in the workplace whether we're talking about temps or we're talking about McDonald's. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, you know, partly the deindustrialization. Well, right, exactly. Partly these jobs are the jobs that exist now as, you know, things have been outsourced or mechanized or just eliminated. And partly those norms are creeping into, like I said, into the fields that we used to think of as good jobs. And the really important point to take out of this is as Amy Traub from Demos said to me for this story, you know, it drives home the point that manufacturing jobs weren't always great jobs. Mm -hmm. They were good jobs because people organized and they fought for them and they put in place work rules and they put in place agreements. I mean, you can see this so clearly when we're talking about Nissan, right? We're talking about the UAW trying to organize these plants that are in the Deep South in Mississippi. And we're talking about... Auto work, right, used to be sort of the quintessential American, like, middle class job that you could get. You didn't need to get a college degree, but you could go out and you could get a job on the assembly line and you could work for, the re- for you know, most of your life and then you would retire with a good pension. And that just doesn't exist anymore yeah. you don't in have, any real way.
1: You used to be able to put your kids through college in a manufacturing yeah. job. Oh, yeah. On oh, a yeah. single salary, even. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, well, college has also gotten more expensive, but that's another right, story. right. right. <laughs> um, and, and unfortunately, I mean that is uh, you know that that also leads us back to this sort of hole in the economy. There's a, there's a, a gap where you have these people who just you know don't either don't have the educational background to ascend into sort of that you know that white collar echelon of the of the labor force, and uh, the the jobs that used to be the backbone of these these yeah. places in the Midwest are just sort of rusting away. And well,
0: and also as we've talked about before, right? Even if you get that education, you that is no guarantee that you're going to get oh, a yes. good job either, because there just aren't that many of those
1: jobs left either. Right. I mean, precarious work, I mean, as we've discussed before on right. this podcast, I mean, <laughs> precarious work is certainly um, creeping into academia, um, you know, uh, by the day. So. Yeah. Um, and it's, I think the, the entire, I mean, the entire sort of temp um, sort of outsourced workforce is close to about three percent of the uh, the total workforce now. So I mean, this is um, this is clearly millions of people, and that's probably an undercount. I mean, if you think about yeah, it, uh, it's I mean, very I think hard to the count, workers that you right? spoke to. Some, I mean, they had sort of a whole taxonomy of some were mm-hmm. so called direct hires. Right. They were sort of right. temporarily in the employ of Nissan, but on a different basis well, than so, the regular workers. So
0: it's interesting because right because these um, the workers who are supposedly temps at Nissan, right? They work for the people that I spoke to worked for a company called Yates Services, but there's also several other temp agencies that are in and out of these places, including Kelly Services, like I said. They have been there for a while. One guy I spoke to had been there for, you know, a year and some odd and had gotten a promotion to a position that required some skill and still remains a temp. So the folks at the Chicago Workers Collaborative who do a lot of organizing of temp workers, they say that instead of calling them temp workers now they they say they're, you know, staffing workers, they're hired through a staffing agency rather than a temp agency because those agency that work is no longer temporary. That's no longer the thing that characterizes it as much as it's that they're hired by this third party agency and when they're hired directly by the company they say direct hire rather than permanent because they're no longer necessarily permanent when you have temps that are there for years on end. The average length of time for a a worker hired from a staffing agency is is like three months. And that's, of course, being averaged out between people who work somewhere for three days and people who work somewhere for three years Mm -hmm. or ten years. Were the direct hires more or less permanent than the staffing agency temps? I mean, the direct hires, again, like Nissan says, they've never laid anybody off, right? So they have more security in that way. They have better benefits they have a little bit more mm-hmm. um, support there but yeah in many cases there are still again there are attempts who are you know sticking around for years mm-hmm. watching people circulate out and still not
1: being hired on directly right and i think that's you know it's it's important to Show I think too, one of the really important finds of the article I think is that um, it, it really reveals how the entire workforce is essentially dragged down by this force of yeah. this increasing force yeah. of, of temp workers right yeah. I mean everybody's job is getting more precarious yeah. you know whether you're you're a long term assembly line worker or you know you, you just got hired yesterday yeah. so um yeah, I think that uh, it, it was it was striking um just to see the role also of um uh, noted Amy Traub and Demos' report, but, uh, you know, the, the issue of, of federal contracting and the role of the federal mm-hmm. government essentially subsidizing um, a lot of these firms. that oh, yeah. that were state governments. Temporary, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, this is supposed to be, I, I guess, you know, that really speaks to sort of the complicity of, of government actors and kind of promoting this this form of manufacturing, which is um, really interesting, especially considering that, like, regionally, you like look at the places where temp work, the temp sector, has, like, more than doubled, you mm-hmm. know, in, in the last 20 years or so, it's, it's the Midwest, right? It's the South. These are places where yeah. unions have either always been weak or eroding very quickly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just to, to think that the local lawmakers, you know, <laughs> who, are, who are elected by more, local people. Uh, it's
0: yeah. interesting, right? You just had a piece up this week about how um, the U.S. government is using sweatshops overseas. Yeah. And... You know, you look at it on the one hand, again, right, we're seeing the the work outsourced to um, garment factories in Cambodia that are in atrocious conditions. And on the other hand, we're seeing the work outsourced right here at home when you have temp workers who are, you know, the position, the listing for the position is asking for specific skills. And yet it's like $10 an hour.
1: Right. I mean, it's truly kind of like the temp. I mean, people say the temp um, sector is sort of a barometer for the rest of the economy. And I yeah. think it's really true in this case mm-hmm. because obviously, I mean, they're, they're just the bare bones sort of facts of the job where you're basically the first one hired, you know, first right. one fired, you know, last one hired, et cetera. Yeah. But also just in terms of the overall trajectory of manufacturing, you see, you know, whether it's abroad or, or here at home, mm-hmm. you see a growing destabilization of the workforce, right? Yeah. With More reliance more on short-term contracts, more reliance on outsourcing. And, and generally speaking, just a decrease in um in liability of the employer right Right. of the company um Uh, Such as, you know, look at, uh, you know, Walmart escapes um, uh, culpability for uh, garment factory uh, collapses and fires in Bangladesh just as easily as it can, uh, you know, escape liability for labor violations against the warehouse workers that it relies on staffing agencies for. So it's all part of this increasing sort of atomization of the supply chain. Well, yeah, you wrote about um, the safety issues, particularly that temps face when they're in... A workplace, but they don't know who the boss is, who they're supposed to report injuries to. Oh yeah, to. and it's interesting because um, OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, they have just recently rolled out um, some new guidelines trying to strengthen accountability in the temp workforce, and and they uh, they they tout this phrase uh, joint you know joint responsibility right, right for worker health and safety, which of course means that it's shared across two entities, and everybody tries to sort of wriggle out of their responsibility. Exactly. So in the end, no one's really jointly just not, you know joint responsibility means everybody. can slack off, Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, it's, right, it's like you get injured on the job and you go to tell somebody and they say, oh, well, you have to tell the staffing agency, and then the staffing agency says, no, 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 you're supposed to tell the person in the the factory. Right, right.
1: And the Chicago Workers Collaborative, I think they, um, you know they have actually tried to do some of the organizing among yeah. the staffing agencies, and one of the hardest things they've had to do is is actually just collect accurate data on who's mm-hmm. getting injured and where, mm-hmm. um, because you know the the um, the employer uh, you know very purposefully will say, oh, it's not our responsibility to collect data on injuries; yeah. they're not really our workers, right? right? And of course the staffing agency will say, oh, well we don't keep track of. I mean we just send out our workers; we're not tracking them all the time right. at every it's individual workplace, job. right? So yeah. in the end the workers fall through the cracks, right? And I actually, I mean. Um, I, I asked them for some of the data reports that they were able to finagle out, and they were they gave me you know what how as complete data as they could find. But yeah. I mean, you had people with like you know with like lacerations they were getting on yeah. machines. I mean, you know the fact is like you know we can litigate who is directly responsible, but workers are, are like you know getting you know getting their hands caught in in, in gears. You know, yeah. meanwhile, so yeah, how many workers burns. are sacrificed? Yeah, and and of course one of the key things I think, and, and you probably found this with some of the companies that you were reporting on, is that that workers' comp is a huge issue in terms of costs that are are being... In addition to just regular old health insurance, right? Yeah. I mean, no one's responsible for these workers when they get sick or hurt on the job.
0: Yeah, and I mean, in the case of um, the Chicago Workers Collaborative, working with a lot of workers who are immigrants, who then have another layer of reasons why they don't put up a fight when they're injured on the job, right, because they don't want to get reported to immigration. Um, And so you would just have, like, you have so many layers of taking advantage of people's vulnerability and people's needs for a decent job. And, you know, I mean, it's just – it's so –
1: there's so many places in which the enforcement yeah. system can just break down completely, right. whether right. it's like the worker uh, herself is intimidated about coming forward with anything right. or, um, you know, each party that she tries to report to, you know, yeah. refuses to take responsibility or, you know, the OSHA inspector actually comes in and interviews them, but doesn't know, you know, where to go, who to, right. who to actually further inspect. So
0: Yeah. So, I mean, the, the positive news is that OSHA is vaguely aware that this is a problem and that maybe thing, something will change on that front. And on the other front like, to go back for a second to these, you know, government contracts that are going to these companies that have terrible labor practices, we look at this and we go, okay, at the the top of these companies, you wrote about this too recently, right? How much the... um, the bosses are making
1: exactly. I mean, the, we have, uh, you know, we don't even try to sort of have any reasonable cap on what these CEOs are are making with uh, right. with federal subsidies. I mean, you know, there's right now. I mean, it's it's like they, they can make up to what you know hundreds of thousands of dollars they can rake in in terms of uh, federal subsidies and, and while paying their workers poverty wages yeah. I mean it used to be that the federal government was there to take the high road on a lot of these things well, right you know we used to uh, think that right <laughs> and and so when when the federal government actually had a direct hand in intervening in the manufacturing workforce they tended yeah. to make the standards higher right um, yeah. and now they're actually doing the exact opposite they're participating in this race to the bottom so.
0: yeah well right I look at at Glock again right this is a company that gets millions Millions of dollars in contracts selling guns to the military selling guns to police forces um the glock website says that 65 percent of police officers in this country carry glocks right. that's a heck of a lot of glocks right. um these that's are not even getting into the ethics of the gun industry <laughs> and the government yeah all. well right it's it's this like it was interesting actually when i started working on this story and i was talking about glock to people and they're like well don't we just like dislike glock in general i'm like well yeah but i mean if they're as long as they're going to continue to exist i want their workplace practices to be better too right Right. whether we are not anywhere close to abolishing the gun industry at this moment in time whatever you think about that um but i do think that perhaps if millions and millions of our tax dollars are going to this company that you know maybe they could pay a little more than 10 bucks an hour maybe
1: maybe just just maybe Right. And if they were more, you know, just workplaces at Glock, then they would have a reason to have these companies be a little more accountable to the public in general. And that's, you know, another broader ethical yeah, issue. Yeah, no, that's industry. a really
0: good point because it's beca- that's become an issue um, when we look at the bank worker organizing that's just starting up, right, is that the bank workers that I spoke to – um really think that if they had more control that they would be able to make the banks more ethical places right when you have people who are fairly low wage workers who are the face of predatory practices you know then they can actually maybe change some things if they had some better protections on the job and they weren't terrified and you know similarly yeah what would the gun industry look like if the people who were working there who might actually know what it's like to have gun violence in their neighborhoods had some say on it i don't i don't know and i'm Mm. not going to try to make a huge sweeping point about guns but i am going to make a point that the uh, military industrial complex this is where as i said before the federal budget just keeps growing and growing and the money keeps just getting thrown at whatever the military wants and some of that maybe maybe probably won't, but could trickle, dra-
1: trickle down to some of these workers. Right. Well, I mean, I think this is a really acute issue in terms of the um, the role of the Army and the Air Force in those industries abroad, where mm-hmm. they are using these sweatshops, because a lot of those clothes that are made, you know, for yeah. government agencies, for government, um, on, you know, military contracts that yeah. uh, often, you know, sold as consumer items by the military, you know, those like great, you know, Marine Corps shirts that say, like, the few, the proud on them. I mean, a lot of them are made in sweatshops, so I mean that there's um, military contracting. I think it's really important to always keep in mind that um, the, you know these uh, these complexes. While we may um, oppose many of their uh, ramifications on principle, right? Um, they are also industries, right? They are yes. sort of pillar of the economy. And one of the reasons they're able to survive and operate with such impunity, right, is because they have such a stranglehold on the economy. So I mean, we really need to be mindful of the fact that that they do operate as economic entities as well as as well as just you know government institutions. So, yeah. yeah. And I think um, one of the things that I I wanted to to bring up, too, is um, the, uh, you know, there has been some legislation, I think, like, you know, that they now have, um, I think Illinois has a temporary workers sort of right to know kind of legislation. Mm -hmm. And they're working on sort of more transparency in the industry. So maybe that's one way that these workers can be, you know, protected better.
0: Yeah. I mean, we're seeing this again across the labor movement right now right is that like the fight is sort of happening on all fronts because it's not enough to just organize in the workplace in one workplace because it's happening everywhere these are systemic issues um it's also not enough just to pass legislation because if there's no way to in- enforce it in the workplace then what good is that legislation right a lot of these abuses that we're seeing are in fact illegal it's just that they're you know they're already illegal we don't need new laws to make some of these things illegal we just need better mechanisms for enforcing those laws. But right. the best Like mechanism- people at OSHA who wow. will actually go to these places. <laughs> right. But I mean, the best mechanism for enforcing laws in the workplace is workers who are aware of their rights and not afraid to
1: demand them. And maybe with a union, but that's so far from the reality of these temp workers. too. Well, some
0: of them, I mean, the Nissan workers are, are in fact, organizing with the UAW. They're, they're pushing forward with that. Um, it's a mess, of course, because, well, we know how union busting goes around here, right? Yeah. Um, the workers that I spoke to all told me about captive audience meetings and hints that the plant would move to Mexico if they join the union, which, of course, Nissan says that they do not tolerate. Um, so... That's a conversation that
1: they should perhaps have with some of their people. Right. But well, and there are actually legal restrictions on the kinds of organizing that they can do with temp workers. because um, there's a there's a court or ruling um, several years ago that basically said, you know, um, permanent workers and temp workers can't uh, organize together without the consent of the company. So there's a big there's you know, there's a big barrier there. I mean, I mean you know. Right. Um, so yeah, and, and it's I think it's 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 a tension too, I think, within organized labor, because um, they used to just basically just, you know, think of temp workers as scabs, right? And the idea was just to keep them out, keep them out, keep them out. And right. now, you know, there's actually some momentum towards, fu- you know, forming some sort of basis for, for you know, cross-sector, uh, cross-workforce organizing.
0: Well, I mean, a lot of the time it's not even cross-workforce, right? It's literally the person who you are working next to in the factory on the assembly line right. who just is doing the same work as you, but was hired by a different company. Right. It's
1: like cross shop floor organizing. It's really
0: not... Right. The difference is, and this is partly, you know... um, the folks from CWC, again, make this point, right, that, like, these companies have not just one temp agency in there. They'll have six. I got my hands on a an application for employment from Glock, and it directs you to six different temp agencies where you could possibly apply for employment in the same one facility in Smyrna, Georgia, where things are made. Just one facility. That's right. it. I mean, and—, and Six companies, plus— you can just apply for a job with Glock.
1: Right. Just In, in terms of just, like, the, the if the object is efficiency, you wonder, like, what kind of efficiency are they paying for by, by sourcing from, like, you know, 15 different companies at once. The efficiency but, yeah. of
0: being able to get rid of people whenever they want.
1: Yeah. And, I mean, just, the like, the simple things that, that could be done just to, uh, you know, even just tweaking federal contracts to, like, you know, make sure that the contracts don't. Um, go to support companies that are egregiously underpaying workers would just be a really good start. Yeah, and
0: that is, again, that's a thing that we could do without changing any laws and without changing anything, right? I talked to Scott Amy from the Project on Government Oversight, and he said, you know, these contracts are supposed to be awarded, um, contracting officers are supposed to look at the company's business record. And they're, whether they have a satisfactory record in in business ethics. And if they're mistreating their workers, maybe that's not a satisfactory record of yeah. good business ethics. Yeah. Um, I mean, sadly, we know what actually that means, which is that companies think that that is great business ethics <laughs> to uh,
1: pay your workers as little as possible. But... You know, right? But of course, the thing is, I mean, it, it, even just in terms of overall labor costs, right? You're saying it, what you found in your reporting is that they're paying, you know, the same thing that they would pay a, a directly hired permanent worker. Right. It's just that they're letting this outsourcing company take the cut because they're paying a premium for the privilege of being able to fire people sort of more right. easily. Yeah, right. They're, right. And
0: also having them do the hiring process. I mean, they're they're paying for. Outsourcing a section of what they do mm-hmm. um, to somebody else. Yeah. But I don't know. It's, it's an interesting question, right? Erin Hatton writes in her book about how um, for a long time the sort of idea was that workers were assets to a company, that you would want to develop good people who you would want to then keep for a long time and you wanted to keep those people happy and that that was at least something that some part of – The business community understood was an important thing to do and i'm not going to say those people were great they were you know often right they were often being pushed into this either as like henry ford because they realized they needed to sell cars or well and not just or but and there was a militant labor movement baying for their blood outside the doors um and now we're in a very different place where workers are seen as just a liability to to get rid of, right, as much as possible and to be kept as insecure as possible, as desperate as possible, um, as dependent on the company and as sort of, you know, if you are not sure that you will have your job tomorrow, you come in and you are going to bust your behind mm-hmm. to make sure that you do a good job so that you do have that job tomorrow.
1: And on the flip side, if you're the employer, you have no reason to invest in that worker. You have no reason to adequately train them on safety protocols. You have no reason to pay for, you know, better protective gear. You have no reason to make sure that everyone on staff is is uh, trained in, in terms of what to do with an emergency. And, yeah. I mean, um, we'll link to it on the website, but there's um, there's a ProPublica investigation that looks at some of... They actually focus on Illinois with the Chicago workers um, have been organizing, but, uh, you know, they look at this whole sort of ecosystem of of temp towns where you have whole communities that are just completely dependent on these jobs, and everybody's, like, going home hurt. Everyone's going home exhausted because there's no one at that work that. Even though they go to the same places every single day, right, the exact same job as any permanent worker um, would do for more money and, you know, with better safety protocols, but there's no no incentive, right? There's no incentive for them to... um, uh, to even just train them on the on the simplest things, like how to avoid being caught up in a homeless grinder, which is how one unfortunate worker that they profiled met his end. So, you know, I mean, that's, um, that's a reality that, that these workers have to live with. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it, it, when they call them contingent workers, I mean, it really is contingency in every way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, their lives are basically contingent on them just getting through the day, you know, yeah. from one end of the day to the other, so...
0: So on that cheerful note, yeah. (laughs) Sorry, guys. We've
1: taken our normal, usual trajectory from our normal
0: cheerful trajectory towards this is miserable. But despair. Okay, I try to leave on a positive note, which is again that people are organizing. That the Chicago Workers Collaborative is doing pretty amazing work organizing mostly immigrant temp workers who are you know, by every measure, sort of the most exploited people in this economy. Yeah. Um, and having won things for either individual cases um, where workers are injured on the job or when workers are having their wages stolen or being successful in pushing laws through and they're expanding their plans. Um, the workers at Nissan are organizing and they are organizing across, you know, the the – Staffing agency and the direct hire workers. One of the workers that I spoke to was a, a direct hire worker who's a, a skilled tool and die technician who is absolutely livid that he works next to people who are long term temps who have been working there nearly as long as he has and make you know half the money that he does. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it is actually worth noting that there is incredible solidarity being shown out there and that we're in a moment where we can talk about this stuff Mm -hmm. and where it's actually drawing some attention.
1: So I'm going to try to be slightly more positive. And that Nissan plant that you looked at was not a union plant. No, these are –
0: and I did talk to people from two different Nissan plants, and they are not unionized right now. Mm -hmm. They are working on trying to organize all of the workers. Mm -hmm. Um, The UAW has these campaigns there. And, I mean, the UAW seems to have realized that they're – you know, they need to organize these plants. They need to organize in the South. They need to make this happen at the risk of their own survival. Because, you know.
1: And and they're only hurting themselves by not reaching out if they don't reach out to those non union workers. And so
0: they have, and they're doing it, and they're putting effort into it, and they're getting community support. And they're most interestingly getting a lot of international support um, from some of these workers in other countries, um, workers in countries where these companies are unionized. Um, We spoke about that on a few belabored episodes ago. Um, so, I don't think it's all doom and gloom. I, I am, when you scratch me really, really hard, an optimist on some of this stuff. Um, and yeah. So, so okay.
1: after that six month investigation, you're not completely depressed. After that six month investigation, I am, in fact, not completely depressed. Mm hmm. And, and what do you think is, like, the next thing you want to – what should we look out for in terms of, like, temp work over the next year or something? Do you think anything might happen at oh, the I organizing mean, front or the legislative front?
0: I mean, I think that this is becoming a thing, right? There's my piece. You've done several pieces on it. ProPublica is doing a whole series of pieces on temp work. Um, our friend Gabriel Thompson, former belabored guest Gabriel Thompson, has done some good pieces on temp work. It's becoming public in a way. People are learning about it. People are understanding that this is a part of the economy and are understanding the way it fits into the broader economy. Um, it's it's no longer temporary. It's permanently a part right, of our exactly, economy. Right, exactly. It's not it's not this you know little piece over here. It's a very very important feature of our economy, as you pointed out. It's a major economic indicator of whether um, things are getting better or worse when temps start to get laid off. So I think. We will see more attention paid Mm -hmm. to this. Mm -hmm. Um, That means we might see more legislation. That means we will most definitely see more worker organizing. And hopefully we'll see some changes. Yeah.
1: And I think one of the interesting things too, is that this whole temp staffing agency workforce has sort of created, um, a set of circumstances in which you do see workers who are being pushed around to all different parts of the economy across different sectors. Yeah. And, you know, maybe there's some power in that in terms of just having these workers who are all over the place. Right. And having such a broad swath of the economy affected mm-hmm. a broad swath yeah. of the workforce. Cause yeah. everybody, I mean, like I know people with PhDs who have had to deal with precarity and labor in some level, yeah. um, temp workers who have college degrees, temp workers who, you know, uh, might not have been in this country for a very long time and just, have, you yeah. know, have never had the chance to to get a job that even... Um, and even pays any benefits or anything like that. So I mean the the, the, the idea that this, this whole precarity issue is affecting so many people, I think, yeah. can be can be the basis for some sort of organizing yeah. once we hit rock bottom, which we're pretty close to doing, I think. So.
0: don't ever say that. Right. It can always we're, get worse. Yes. <laughs> I right know, I'm just
1: waiting to be surprised. I haven't
0: had to spot, hawk yes. the microphone we're recording this on yet. So. Yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> that's good too. It's nice and clean. Right a nice now. Microphone. Yes. Um, <laughs> anyway.
0: It is, in fact, the time we say, "Arg!" I wish I'd written that. I, this week, had um, a lot of feelings reading a piece from a former belabored guest way back in episode two, uh, Paul Mason, British journalist, reporting for the UK's Channel 4 on the release of documents recently that show Margaret Thatcher's micromanagement of the 1984 miners' strike. And this is, when we talk about the miners' strike for people who aren't, from the UK or as up on UK labor issues. Um, Similar to the PATCO strike where um, the air traffic controllers strike in this country where Reagan fired them all, it was a really pivotal moment for labor in the UK. And of course, the uh, conservative government under Prime Minister Thatcher um, pretended to be neutral. And they were just enforcing the law. And it was all of these rowdy miners who were getting whatever um, they were just maintaining order. And this has been the fiction that has been kept up for nearly 30 years. And with the release of these documents, we see that that is not at all true. Um, so Mason writes about the documents annotated in Thatcher's own handwriting, showing how deeply she was involved in planning to break the strike in possibly bringing in soldiers to move the coal. This really was a political action from start to finish, of course, which um, the miners have always said, the UK left has always said was the case. And now, of course, this um, proves that they were right. Uh, There's a video report that goes along with this piece at Channel 4. We will put a link to it at the Dissent um, website, as well as a link to Episode 2 of Belabored, where we talk about Madam Thatcher's legacy with Paul Mason. But really... The piece is striking not only for the news that it breaks, but sort of the emotional resonance of it. Mason was there, he remembers this viscerally, and you can feel that in every word. So, mm-hmm. And maybe it. even
1: to a greater degree than the PADCO strike, it really broke labor. I mean, like, it was really just a trauma throughout um, organized labor across the UK. So. Yeah. Sticking with the UK theme. Um, I have another Anglophile story uh, to report on, but my ARG, so much contemporary um, labor issue going on in, in Britain and across the EU right now, actually. There is a great piece um, in The Independent um, about the um, Uh, It's called From Bucharest to London, On the Bus with the Romanians, Taking the 52-Hour Ride in Search of a New Life in Britain. And it's sort of a great um, kind of feature slice slice-of-life sort of piece that just um, goes, tracks um, a group of uh, Romanian workers um, just – trying to trying to carve out new lives in London and it's sort of in the wake of these this loosening of um labor migration restrictions across the EU so a bunch of these western uh, European countries and England have recently um loosened some of their restrictions on uh workers who can uh, come from eastern European countries like Romania and Bulgaria and um and move into uh, and move into the basically the other parts of the EU economy that are richer and, and tend to pay higher wages. And there's a lot of scaremongering going on in the right right now in Britain about hordes of Romanians coming uh, to uh, to take over uh, uh, you know British jobs and to uh, sop up those lavish British benefits, right? So, and uh, the reporter actually just sort of just plops himself down on a on a bus with some Romanians and, and learns their story and and finds something very different um, and basically. Uh, over these 52 hours learns about some of their struggles and actually learns that, um, you know, and this may surprise a lot of people in, in Britain who thinks that it's these, you know, um, uh, random crowds of Eastern Europeans hungry for British jobs who are just going to be flooding over the border. Um, many of these Romanians were already working in Britain for a very long time as builders. Many of them are working off the books and the, the difference now is essentially that they'll be able to get paid with their worth instead of working undocumented many workers do here in the US. Um, so it's a similar story to what you see um, among many undocumented immigrant, um, largely Latino workers here uh, in the States. Um, the interesting thing, of course, in, in Europe is that um, you have all these different sort of cultural connotations around um, the, you know, the Romanians, uh, the Bulgarians, um, you know, these sort of supposedly uncouth uh, Eastern Europeans coming over, um, uh, the, the Roma minority, there's a lot of tension surrounding those. And there's this issue, similar issues are around whether they'll integrate, whether they'll just be leeches and, and prey on, and, uh, on, on the welfare system. And I think what this piece does um, by Emily Duggan in The Independent is, um, is basically elucidate for people um, the fact that these are real people and whether they are really having a tough time of it, whether they're struggling as construction workers or working as sex workers in Spain or, um, or working as, as nannies in very affluent London homes. I mean, everybody has a story to tell, and it's really, really difficult to generalize about this workforce. They are as diverse as the workforce of their destination country, and, um, and that's, that's a fact that you can't really get around. So um, while there are many people who insist on closing the borders, calling for more immigration restrictions, I think pieces like this do a pretty good job of illuminating the fact that um, immigration is more or less a, um, an inevitable phenomenon. And unless society comes up with a way to responsibly um, confront that reality, uh, we're just going to have more and more ignorance being produced. <laughs>
0: What do you mean, like, in this country?
1: Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, I won't uh, vouch for whether, uh, you know, London um, is, is more or less friendly towards immigrants, but uh, regardless, there's a lot of fear on both sides of the Atlantic yeah. right now. Unreasonable fear. So, yep. Yeah.
0: Well, on that note, we, we thank you for listening to episode 36. Be of, not afraid, uh, people. Be not afraid of uh, Dissent Magazine's belabored podcast. We will be back next week. If you have not gotten enough of Michelle and I this week, we also did a an interview together for Marie Choi at KPFA on the issue of unpaid work. We will put a link to that as well on the Dissent website. And uh, as always, send us your ideas, questions, suggestions, things you'd like to have explained, news, updates anything else you can tweet at us at hashtag belabored you can once again find us at the dissent website you can find us on facebook you can find us all over the internet you can't avoid us
1: really we are we're everywhere really everywhere legion <laughs> <laughs> and we will be back next week this life is hard so hard i must go nah, we can't go Our society has me and it's crazy
0: because daily it gets hard